0: As an industry, we've made it our business to learn about games, how they work, about their resonance, and their successes or failures, but there's a human side to the industry as well. My name is Paul James, and welcome to Dev Diary, a series that explores and celebrates the incredible feats of the people behind the games, as we dive into their stories, the highs, the lows, and everywhere in between. In this episode, I'm joined by Dan Draper, current gameplay programmer at Samurai Punk. So join us as we explore his journey. So today I'm joined by Daniel. Daniel, how are you, mate?
1: Yeah, not too bad. How
0: are you? How are you? Yeah, going really well. Um, And this is Dev Diary, a series where we kind of go through the stories of developers, big and small, from all sorts of uh, walks of the industry, and we share their stories a little bit. And so I'm going to lead things off today with the same question I ask everyone. What was your first gaming experience? What was the first game that you recall playing?
1: Oh, that's a good one. I have this one
0: memorized. (laughs) Oh, good because I have a few people that go, "Oh, jeez, I can't remember the first game I, uh, the first game I played." I've got the first game I remember, but not the first game that I remember playing. So, you're off to a good start already.
1: (laughs) So, this one is so vivid in my mind because it's such a pivotal point in my life. But when I was five, my dad used to work at a big company made ATMs, so it would make ATMs for Commonwealth, a, um, ANZ, all of like the big banks. Yep. And he used to get all of these leftover computers. So he brought a computer home one day and he gave it to me. And I was like, oh, I've seen my dad on on a computer since I was you know, a baby, I've never had one myself. And he's like, here, this is yours. And I was just like blown away, I had this computer, I could now be like my dad. And it turned out his actual motivation for getting me a computer was that he had somebody to email. <laughs> so oh, yeah, okay. we had an internet connection, but he had no one in our extended family to email. So he got me a computer, and it came with some shareware that obviously was on the computer from from work, uh, which was Doom. So good start. Yeah, Doom was on the computer, and of course, it looks like a video game. It Had a nice icon, and it was like a, it was like some loops through it, and it was like. I don't even know what the icon was but it was not like any other app on the computer so i i booted it up and my dad was like oh yeah i've got that game as well um so we we ended up playing it and then my dad gave me doom 2 um probably like a year later and that one was a multiplayer game and doom 2 was probably like i played it just as much as doom 1 but doom 2 was the one that really resonated with me because it had multiplayer support, so you could play on a LAN network. Yes, of course. Um, so my dad would sit in another room, I would sit in my bedroom on my computer, and we would play together. So we played through the story all the way from the start, because you can join in the same server from level one and play all the way to the final boss without losing any connection or anything like that. So we played through the game like hundreds of times, and it was just both of our favorite games. And I probably played it till I was like seven. Like We just played it like constantly. So yeah, that was my first game. And like even today, I always love going back to play Doom too. Doom. You wouldn't believe the number of
0: people that have come on this show so far and have spoken about Doom as being one of their, one of if not their first for their first game. I, I, I hope that Tim Willits, Romero, Carmack, none of them are actually listening to this because they'll all start reaching out to you for royalties. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> they already got their money in the first place. But I think the the industry just wouldn't exist if it weren't for those guys.
1: Yeah, I mean. Like those games are fantastic. And even today, like I look back and I'm like, oh my goodness, like the raycast engine that they set up to like actually render the screen is just fascinating. Um, and we might even come back to that later. It's one of the first things that one of the first renderers I wrote. Um, oh cool. But yeah, like Doom 2 was just so pivotal and I've I've loved every Doom game that's come out since and like Doom twenty yes. sixteen. Oh that was, that's three years ago almost now, oh my goodness. Um Doom 2016 Yes, yeah, so we're, we're quite possibly in the year of Doom Eternal for all we know Yeah, yeah, it's meant to be coming mid this year, right? Hopefully Yeah, but like Doom 2016 was like such a good ode Oh my goodness, like I felt like I was right back there in my like seven-year-old self playing Doom again It was great
0: And so what else kind of made up those early gaming years? Were there? I mean, I assume it wasn't just Doom and Doom 2 um, How did ah. things kind of develop? Did you did you get to experience other genres? Were there any that you particularly gravitated towards?
1: Yeah, well, that was just a the um, I guess, I guess the snowball right. It just started kept it kept rolling because um, that was like the era of shareware. So lots and lots of video games are coming out and we're just easily yep. accessible, uh, and we had an internet connection. Um, it was just being used for email, so I had all of this extra time to download video games. Um, of course, I mean that would take a week to download, but we got them eventually. Um, the it uh, was worth it. Yeah, and even looking back now, that would be done in like. A millisecond, right? Um, <laughs> but yeah, it was games like Commander Keen, like that was another id game and that was like fantastic as well as a platformer shooter. Um what else was there? Oh we got got Morrowind when that came out. Um I was, so the short was, version is out of all
0: this. We keep cycling back to things I get, and companies, I guess, that Bethesda owns these days. So, yeah, they're, yeah, they're going oh, to yeah. come door knocking soon, I think.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah definitely. Um, I'm trying to think of like what other sort of stuff. But, yeah, it wasn't until I was probably like in my early teens that I was actually able to get uh, like a console. Yeah. So, for the first time, I got a PlayStation 1. And it was years after all my friends had had a PlayStation 1. Um, I probably would have been starting high school uh, it was probably the worst time for it to happen Um,
0: yeah games, sport, those sort of things tend to have a bit of an impact on uh, people's uh, capacity to study
1: mm. I'm actually trying to remember <laughs> when the Playstation 1 came out it might have been earlier than that I may have, may have actually had it in primary school
0: 96 I think it, or, or is that when I got it? oh jeez <laughs> yeah. either way I was yeah. really late to the game
1: I think I got it when the PlayStation 2 came out or something. It was, like, so far behind. Uh, but it meant i get to borrow my friend's games and they were still being rented at the rental store because that was something that existed back then. And, yeah, um, yeah I used to play... Like, I think I played so many games, like some of the early Call of Duties and um, there was, like, a game called Siphon Filter. that was yes. a Tom Clancy game. Um, uh, there was a whole bunch of stuff on the PS One that yeah, was that'd just be like, like the mind-boggling. Old, yeah,
0: Cypher Filter, the old Rainbow Six. So I guess a lot of those things that are yeah. actually now on the PlayStation Classic that no one bought. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> um,
1: but so I got, got I'm a sure PlayStation they were looking for a
0: second lease of life there, and it's not happened.
1: Yeah, well, they were trying to copy Nintendo, right? Yeah, it was a little bit harder for them, um, but yeah. So yeah, then I would have been not too long after that. I started like, you know my own little business, I guess, you know, mowing lawns around the street for all the people who wanted to give me some extra pocket money. Um, I managed to save up enough to buy a second-hand PS2. Yep. Um, And I bought one of those, uh, like, cracked PS2s, right, where you could play the copied games on them and stuff like that. yeah, yeah.
0: That was me in my PS1 days. Uh, I don't condone it now, but it was...
1: Oh, oh yeah, I enjoyed it back then. <laughs> yeah, de- definitely. Like it's it's one of those things that like in retrospect, you're like, oh god, I was I was hurting a lot of people doing that. But um, like you didn't know better. Like yeah, Really you're a little kid. You
0: don't necessarily understand.
1: Honestly, my parents should have should have said no to that, but they didn't. Um, but yeah, I got a PS2, and like around that sort of time, um, would have been like a year after. Probably that would have been around when I started high school, I think. Um, and yeah, that, that was sort of lining up with a whole bunch of other stuff that was happening. So, I was still playing a whole bunch of P- PC games, and probably my biggest one at the time was Star Siege Tribes, and that was like a pivotal pivotal game for me as well. Like There's Doom, which was pivotal in getting me into games, and I would say Star Siege Tribes was pivotal in getting me into programming. Um, so, my PS2... And my PC jumping between all sorts of games because they weren't on both consoles. PC P- uh, PS two was a bunch of exclusives that weren't on PC. PC had a bunch of like more advanced kind of games, and the PC Master Race thing had already sort of started online. Oh yeah. Um. And yeah, so I'd play like Kingdom Hearts and all of the all of the mainstay titles on PlayStation two. Yeah. Um, but yeah, on PC there was this game that I was just fascinated with called Star Siege Tribes and like Tribes has sort of continued on it's got a legacy going now and it had we had Tribes Ascended like seven years ago now or something like that Has a yeah, free-to-play yeah, nostalgia
0: for that franchise, yeah yeah
1: and like Star Siege Tribes was the game that sort of blew my mind in terms of multiplayer so multiplayer had a server-based list similar to your Call of Duties except when you joined a server If that server had a custom mod running on it it would download all the files necessary you needed for that custom mod to your local computer so you could play on that server and have a fully full experience and if you didn't have the files you just couldn't play it would boot you out of the server so i would play the normal game modes probably the first like year of that game was out and then i stumbled into a server because i had no idea this mod system worked stumbled into a server that had a completely different rule set it was an rpg of this shooter game Um, So, in this RPG, there was no guns, which was weird, because the game is about shooting things. Um, Instead, all the guns were, like, rotated uh, 90 degrees, and they were, like, axes and swords and, you know, mining picks. Some of the guns were, like, it was, like, one of the sniper rifles Um, was tilted 90 degrees, and then it had a pistol on either side, and it was a mining pick. And it was like, oh, okay. you just sort of had to, like, abstract your mind a bit to say, oh, yeah, this is a mining pick in this game mode. Uh, but then it had, like, persistent data. It would keep your progress on the server, and it would um, you'd have things like you'd go off and you'd mine, come back, and you'd craft. And there was a crafting system in there, something that was not in the base game at all. And I thought this was amazing. I played this RPG mode you know, every day after I came home from school. I'd play with my friends. It was all multiplayer. Um, and the server could hold up to, like, 40 people which was amazing. and Huge for the time. Huge for the time, because this game came out in, like, ninety ninety eight, I think, and I only discovered it in, like, 2004 or something like that. Um, and, yeah, it was, like, so amazing. And then I joined some other servers. There was a paintball server where you're firing paintballs and it would splat across the map and stuff like that. Then there was, like, another one, which was... Um, it was based on Neverwinter, so it was like a Neverwinter mod. Yep. And that one was a, a team-based RPG where when you joined, you got to choose a faction, and once you chose that faction, you were on that faction forever. But you had to be there almost all the time to fight back the other team, so it was like the Horde vs Alliance kind of feel before World of Warcraft had before sort of World taken Warcraft off. It. And, yeah, so it was like... Yeah, we ran across this really large map and it was like, there was this huge metagame to it. There would be one person on each team dedicated to crafting because it would take hours and hours to build up like a crafting level to be able to make weapons and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, and I was, I was really curious how this was made because at the time I was like, this is not what Star Siege Tribes was about at all. It was about capturing the flag and deathmatch and stuff like that. So I asked the creator because he was online at one point. And he was like, "Oh yeah, this is a mod that I made purely by myself. Uh, these are the tools I used. Come join these forums, and we can talk more there about how to go about making your own stuff." And I was like, "Wait, I can make something like for this game?" So I went off. I found the tools, and there was like a little step-by-step guide about how to pull out um, the mod tools from the game. You had to run a couple of EXEs and pass in a couple of command-line arguments. So I followed the guide, and I got a bunch of, like, text files uh, that had a .cs extension. And I opened up one of them, and I'm like, I'll just just change, you know... um, Tweak a couple of things? Yeah, I'll tweak a couple of things. I'll change, like, what the weapons damage is or whatever like that. I opened it up, and it was just this huge mess of gobbledygook. And I just did not understand what's going on here. I'm like, wait, people write this? Like, it would just look like nonsense. So... I went through, searching through the files, I looked for a file, found a file called weapon. I'm like, oh, my God, that seems like a good place to start if I want to change some weapon stuff. Jumped in there, and there was just a bunch of functions. And one of the functions was called damage. And I was like, well, yeah, I can see where this, is going. this is probably going to do something. So I changed, I think it was, it, the the actual function name might have been something like damage3, open bracket, close bracket. And I was like, oh, I know how to how to change the damage, I'll change that three to a to a nine. I'll change it to a nine, open up the game, and like read through the instructions of how to actually run the, the mod, uh, which was actually rather rather simple. You would just create the folder that had all the mod files in it, put it inside your tribes directory, and it would just come up with, it as some actual mod in the game, so it had already supported just looking for folders. Oh, okay, great. And it would hot load. Like if you made a change, it would just hot load, and it would be ready to go again. Um so I booted up this server and it just crashed. I'm like, "Well, that didn't work." Um, little do I know, did it, little did I know at the time that changing that nine was actually changing the function name, not the value that was being like moved around inside that yes. function. yeah, of course. Um, so, damage nine didn't actually point to anywhere inside the internal code. It just purely was a function name. So I went back and I undid what I the change I made and opened it up again, and it worked. It was like the base game. Um, but like at that time I wanted to make, I wanted to make Neverwinter. I wanted to make this cool game mode where there was an RPG elements and you were like leveling up and all that sort of stuff. Um, so had no usually, idea.
0: Usually one of my second questions amongst this whole thing is, was there a game that kind of prompted that pursuit into the industry? Would it be fair to say based on what we just discussed that, uh, this might've been that game for you?
1: Oh, hundred percent, hundred percent. Sorry. I saw jumped <laughs> the gun there. I just realized I've been no, no, talking. It,
0: no, it, it works perfectly. Like, uh, it, that was a perfect segue there but um were there any other games that kind of elicited that same sort of reaction or was was that the big defining thing for you that maybe made you consider hey this is this is a potential pathway for me
1: oh the potential pathway hadn't hadn't come yet um this was just the the like my intoxication for video games and then then coming on programming um was that once i looked at this gobbledygook and um, I sort of messed around with it a bit more and I actually found inside the function where to change the damage number. It sort of clicked and it became an unhealthy relationship with programming. And um, yeah, so I would have been, yeah, I must have been almost 12 or I must have been around 12 when I discovered this. So I, I had just started high school, I think. And yeah, I just, this fascination was amazing and I sort of learned a bit more and I kind of learned as much as I could going through this code and reading what it does. And I spent hours studying this code. Like I had no idea that online there was resources for learning this kind of stuff. And it was still sort of in the earlier times when like YouTube YouTube didn't exist yet. And um, most of the code was coming from like a forum called dreamingcode.net, I think it was at the time. It might still be around actually, it's a pretty big community. Uh, but I was, like, sort of starting to learn, like, this what was old C-sharp. Um, and it was, it, this was really old C-sharp. Like, C-sharp today is nothing like C-sharp 1 was, like, um, and C-sharp was just their interpretive language. I think the actual engine ran C++ underneath and it would interpret the C-sharp and run it. That's how they did the hot loading stuff. But uh, this was, like, an olden-day C-sharp, and it was very much... Uh, like it was very confusing because it had a sort of different setup to how modern day languages are as well but yeah I sort of fiddled around and I started to learn how to write my own functions and I sort of started to build my own sort of RPG kind of thing um, so I manipulated the sh- the shop NPCs to sell weapons and they had the weapons had a particular value associated with them so it might have been like the, the rifle was you know five like five gold pieces and then I made like the machine gun sixty gold pieces, and I sort of I wasn't very good at balancing games or anything like that. But I made a bunch of things, and it was kind but of. But it's fun. very primitive, and that's that's normal and okay. Yeah, and then I had a I had a friend that lived across the road, and he also got into Star Siege Tribes, and it was almost every night I would stay up to all hours, three or four in yeah. the morning, making a map because it had a map editor as well, and the map editor was in in engin- uh, in like in-gameplay part of the engine as well. So like, when you open up a, a game, you could go up, open in the console and go edit map, and it would open up the map editor and you could edit your map and you could save it, it had all the tools inside of it. But you, it also meant you could just hit play and you could just run around and explore your map. So it's been hours and hours just making these, this WorldCraft map that was just made out of all of the primitive objects that you had in the, in the engine. Um, you couldn't make any custom shapes, you could only use the props that were in the game, and a terrain system. And that terrain system was fantastic, um, when I look back at it now, for when it was made. It, just, it ran so smoothly, it was so highly customizable, and it had really nice painting tools, um, things that Unity only just got this year, like, it was fantastic. Um, but yeah, I spent hours, I was up to like 4 in the morning, and then I'd get up and go to school at 6.30 in the morning, and I, I would just not sleep at all. And, it was also that when i got home from school i could ask my friend to come over or he could stay at his place and we would play together online because tribes is online and it was easy enough to set up a server you could play together um so i would make this custom rpg and i keep working on it and i'd go, hey come join play my game we would play together for a little bit he'd get bored because it wasn't very good and um i would just keep doing it doing it um and then every now and then he'd actually have some fun and it was really that like reward system going on that was subtle
0: you'd almost started that whole development sort of process at that point because you you're uh, seeking a bit of feedback and then you're making tweaks and changes based on that feedback it sounds like you were even back then in those early stages of I guess what's ultimately culminated in what you're doing today
1: yeah back then I hadn't even thought about that whole iteration cycle or or anything sounds like you were still doing it though Yeah, happenstance would be that, that's the way it goes, and I guess it's kind of, you also see that in play, in like, the playground, right, at at a school, kids will, like, have, oh, let's play British Bulldog, and then they form their own rules because it was unfair, because one kid is going through going through maturity quite quickly and is quite muscly and strong, and so you're like, okay, if we touch this thing, you can't touch it, so it's like, there's like, they modify the rules all the time, right? Um, Yeah, of course. And develop uh, into their own sort of style of game. Um, mean that's the nature of play, but yeah.
0: So how did things kind of begin with that journey into, I guess, the industry? Um, I, I've, I've did a little bit of digging before we started recording here and I did see you cool. spent a few months doing some QA testing. Yep. Um, so how was that? What did you kind of take from that, from that phase, I guess?
1: Hmm. So yeah, getting into, into that like games games was a bit of a weird path. So, um, I had this sort of like hobbyist kind of feel went on for quite a while. So, from there, I, you know, tribes eventually fell off and it, the community sort of died. More, people weren't playing much anymore. I had a few randoms that would play my RPG mode, which was amazing. It was terrible. They'd only play for five minutes, but whatever. Uh, they played it nonetheless. Yeah, they played it nonetheless, <laughs> right? Um, and then tribes sort of died off and I got into like, playing Counter-Strike and stuff with my friends and like getting into some other single sort of player games Um, but all that time I was sort of fascinated with programming because people obviously get really good at this because they made the whole Star Siege Tribes game and I sort of sat in the back of my head and I started to learn programming so I started looking it up on Google and finding all these communities about programming, Uh, I mentioned Dream Code, I spent a lot of time there. Uh, if I could remember my old username, there's probably like five thousand posts on it or something like that. <laughs> um, but I I've so- got a question. Can you can you help? Yeah, yeah. Essentially, there was a lot of those, and then there was me helping other people as well, and that really buffed up my learning quite quickly. Because if somebody told me I was wrong, I would fix it immediately. And like when people said I was right, it was reaffirming my knowledge in the area. And I think I'd done some diving about like games and how they were made, and everyone was pointing towards C++, so I started learning C++. And that was a bit of a journey, it it honestly never got finished, like I work in C++ occasionally these days, but um, I wouldn't say I'm a master at it. I wouldn't say I'm a master at programming at all. Actually, it's <laughs> it's one of those curves where you go, I'm really good at this. I'm not very good at this. I'm really good at this. Um, I mean, part
0: of it's the nature of also the industry that we're talking about here. The technology is always changing, which means there's new,
1: yeah. new things that can kind of emerge over time and new things to learn. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, but yeah, sort of we kept learning programming while I was at school, um, and I sort of moved away from games a bit, and I started I started getting uh, into like just all sorts of programming languages, and I started getting into network security, and that's a whole nother story. Which I, I don't know if you want to get into, like how I got into network security nope. and did that. F- break feel
0: free. No, no, feel free. That's an interesting pathway, and it ultimately
1: led to where we are now. So please, yeah. So tell. okay, so uh, I did network for security for I don't know four years. So what happened is okay. like probably around about yeah when I started to fall off from like Starfish tribes, and I was doing programming in the evenings. World of Warcraft also came out, so I was playing World of Warcraft, Counter Strike. I was just, I did nothing but play video games uh, after school until the early hours of the morning. I wouldn't go to bed, and I'd go to school the next day. Um, And my parents eventually caught wind of this. Like I looked tired, I looked exhausted. Yeah, your eyes are hanging out. out Yeah, essentially. And my parents caught wind of it, and my dad, being in computers, uh. He, he was the admin of the of the router and he set up a timer to cut off the internet at 11 p.m. at night or I think it might have been 10 or something like that it cut off, cut it off at 10 p.m. at night and I would come back at, on at 7:30 in the morning um, just just from my IP address so this infuriated didn't even me to anyone else yeah this infuriated me right because I've, I've been used to staying up all night you know learning and playing video games with my friends in America um, so first thing I want to do is know how to get my internet back on. So I started researching during my earlier, like my time online from after school about how to get into routers and turn off these timers. And it sort of started, I stumbled upon a, a place called hackthissite.org. And they pointed me to a bunch of whole other references. And I read through a whole bunch of stuff. Um, and I started trying to break the router. And the first thing. I tried, it was back in the old days, um, was to copy cookies. So what I would do is I'd go up to uh, my dad's computer while he's asleep, plug in a USB and start copying across uh, uh, the cookies. And I had, yep. wrote a little little script to do that as well. Copy across the cookies, and I plug it into my computer, and I would copy them into my Firefox at the time, and boom, I'm straight in. I was like, turn off the timer, and I, I I did this for quite a while. So what I would do is I would jump on, turn off the timer right as it was about to turn off, and then I would play all night, or I would program into the early hours, and then before I go to bed, I would turn the timer back on, and then I would go to bed, and this very th- nicely done. This lasted for probably like weeks months maybe and then it obviously became um, clear to my dad when he looked at the history logs that there was changes happening on the router um, <laughs> so he changed the password and like all the cookies got um, got reset as well when he reset the router um, so I was back to square one and I thought about trying the same thing again um, but then he ended up upgrading our router and you know, that no longer worked. Um, I've
0: got to appreciate that resourcefulness, though. Yeah, that's 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 a level of enthusiasm that you don't often see as a as a teacher in my well, my day to day. Yep. Uh,
1: I wish more of my students had that sort of commitment. <laughs> <laughs> so I was back to square one. I kept kept learning, kept learning, um, and then I ended up finding a vulnerability in the router that we had at the time. So it was it was well, I didn't find the vulnerability. I should say I found online. Um, a way to get through the router, and it was a like a, a drawback that it had in uh, processing the SQL on the login system, and it was vulnerable to like one of the, like the most obvious SQL um, problems that used to exist uh, back back in the day, which was uh, not escaping characters that go into input fields. So what I did was inside the username field, I would do something like uh, apostrophe equals one, something one, uh, apostrophe. And that was enough to escape out of the, the um, query string for where it was looking for the admin password, or for the admin yeah. login name, and grab the first cell and the first password from the cell and return it. And that would log me in. So I did that for a while. Um, and then Busted! It, Busted it again! Busted again! That one probably lasted quite a quite a bit longer. So that one lasted probably a couple of months, maybe. Yes, I'm sure Dad was feeling
0: pretty confident at this point that he'd finally got you.
1: Yep. So then we got a new router. So we're going through routers pretty quickly here. Um, <laughs> and this one was meant to be a top, high secure router that you know no one can get through. And uh, oh, this one, this one was a good one. This was, um, I was like, okay, I I can't find any vulnerabilities online to get through this router. Um, like what? What can I do to get into it? And it was it was a one of the, like the first Cisco routers you get at home, yeah. and it was, it was like it was pretty like it was small for a router like at the time. So it took a, a modem back like had a modem included with the router, and oh yeah okay yep yeah. And at the time it was like oh everyone online saying oh, this one this one's unbeatable, and then I stumbled upon like a thread that's that's like oh if you have. Like access to a router, then like physical access to a router, then it's no problem. You just go up and hit the hit the factory reset. And I was like, <laughs> you know what? That makes a lot of sense. So I, I went up and I factory reset the router. It lost all of its settings. It lost, lost all of its settings. Um, but it, it would auto configure. So you, you ran like a little auto configure thing, and it would it would pull Telstra and ask for the settings it needed to be able to. To connect back. So it would send out like, it was like a connection beacon, it would send out. Uh, and that was the modem side of it. And then that yep. would hook up and it would configure your router for you. And that was, I think that was a tool that Telstra had because they didn't want to be constantly manually configuring routers every time they would like send them to people or they would go to their house to set up their internet. So they yep. would plug it in and they would do a ping and it would ping and figure out the settings. So I would factory reset it, do the ping, get the settings back, and I'd be online. It would lose, like, all of the passwords would reset back to default, and... Yeah, of course. Like, it would, like, all the timers would be off, like, everything would be lost. So, it didn't take long for my father to catch on, but by this point, he was like, crap, you can just factory reset it every time. Like, I can't do anything except for, like, take the router away. And he didn't want to do that. Yeah, physically unplug it each night. Yeah, physically unplug it and take it away each night. And like meanwhile while all this was going on i had a few other friends that their parents started doing the same thing because we'd stay up till four in the morning doing a raid with our american friends like um <laughs> like it was like critical this that we would, would be there for that raid so yeah. once my dad sort of talked about it with my friend's parents who were also complaining but because my dad was a techie they would talk to him they're like oh there's nothing really you can do unless you like take the router away so i don't a few of my friends that. Parents would take the router away and put it on their bedside table or in their bedside drawer. And then it would, like, I remember specifically it would be, like, uh, 10 p.m. at night. They're about to turn off the internet for the friend. And he's like, okay, I'll be back at, like, 11 once everyone goes to bed. Uh, i got to go sneak into my parents' bedroom and steal it out of the drawer or off the shelf. And then plug it back in and reset it up. (laughs) And it used to be crazy, like a crazy thought. Um, And every night we'd wait there at 11. I wonder, I wonder if he managed to do it and he jump on at like 11, 15 be like oh there it is oh yeah managed to do it uh, mum didn't wake up or dad didn't wake up um, and it used to be hilarious at the time um, and then yeah so my dad gave up at that time um, and he gave up for quite a while until we got a new router probably a year later but at that time I was I was getting destroyed so I was there was like several days where I'd not sleep because I'd be raiding every single night of the week or, oh wow okay like, and I'd go to school uh, I'd be tired out of my wits, but it would be fine because I had all my friends that keep me entertained, um, keep me awake. And I get home and have all my friends on the internet as well. Um, so yeah, that that went on for a while, and I still sort of got really interested in network programming and like like hacking computers and getting into them. So I learned about like writing basic key loggers and like. Uh, how to send out like sync packets to wireless networks because wireless networks are just becoming a, a bit of a thing then. And uh, like how to, uh, yeah, force reset routers and like how to reconfigure them. And um, I really got into it and like how to bypass web pages. And I got really good at that because uh, there was so many vulnerable SQL servers. Um, I was just reading so much, I was spending so much time awake so I got really into it, and that sort of like took me on a detour away from games for a while. Uh, I was still playing huge amounts of video games, but it took me away for, from it for a while. Um, yeah, but it was more about, I think at that,
0: from what I'm gathering at this point, it was more about you consuming the games necessarily rather yeah. than um, trying to build on them or learn about the, the back end stuff, I guess. Yeah, I,
1: I was still kind of doing a bit of that. So for the game Counter-Strike Source, I was using the Hammer Editor to make my own maps for my friends and stuff like that. And I would spend yeah. nights awake doing that as well. Um, I had a friend who ha- who ran a server, and it was always full, always like 20 people on the server. Um, and it, all it did was run custom maps, and I would make maps, and my maps would go into the map pool. So I would just give them to him, and put them in the map pool. And I used to make a map, either a map a night or a map a week. And they'll, they Some of them were real bad. Some of them were actually all right. Like I go back and think about them now. Um, but because I made so many of them, like I was making so many maps, I got actually pretty good at figuring out how to make like fun toys for people to play with in the Counter Strike engine. Um, so some of them were like really weird stuff. Like you know, you were navigating through like these mazes and you had buttons you could press and it would drop all the walls down. Um, or, like, you could teleport up these multiple levels of, like, these, um, mazes, and then some of them were, like, I would cover the world in, like, grass, or, like, these bushes, because these bushes, for yeah. some reason, rendered all right, but some people's computers would tank because they just weren't ready for it, and make, like, all these stealth maps. Some of them had, like, waterfalls and all these things, and then they could hide behind. And, like, I think it was just... I was just really into adventure, and I put, brought them into these multiplayer games that didn't really deserve them. Um... So like sometimes it'd be like this really simple level. It's like a house in the middle of like a flat plane. But when you went into the house and you walked up to the toilet and you pressed E on the toilet, it would open up a trap door that would go into this massive underground layer. <laughs> and like people, people would be like, okay, like they would join the server on the voice chat. So they're like, okay, no shooting until we're in the dungeon. And like everyone would crowd from both teams to the toilet, drop down the ho- drop down the secret <laughs> hole, and they would be like, all right. Spread out, and then when we say go, we'll start combat so like it was weird like when I think about it now, nowadays like if that was a real map in a real game nobody would do that people would just shoot each other before they even got there Like uh, it was well fascinating. I mean based on some of
0: the uh, consumer behavior that goes on these days but at the same time um, you get the right group and that, that sort of map would still go down like a house on fire I'm sure
1: yeah like I had, I had a little bit of like a cult following because like whenever I release a new map there'd be a bunch of people like oh new map from draps it's like oh yeah let's play it I wonder what the secrets are this time. I wonder where the hidden teleporters are. I wonder if I can get on top of the map and see everyone and cheat. Because uh, I always put one of those in almost all of my maps. There was like always yeah. like a hidden corner you could go to, press like E, jump five times, and turn around 90 degrees, and it would teleport you to the top of the map, and you could look down on everyone. But they <laughs> couldn't see you because you were outside the skybox. It was like, yeah, yeah, yeah it was ludicrous. Um, but that's, that was fun. That was sort of while I was doing other things. Um, and then it would have been right near the end of high school, so um, probably around year 11 or 12, uh, I had to do a assignment for, I think it was for physics class. Yep. And it was, it was something like either make a, like a diorama or, or write, like write a paper on something you would learn this, this term and we've been studying uh, gravity and how the planets move around the solar system. So I ended up jumping in Game Maker. By this time I'd learned how to use GML and make little pithy games in, in GameMaker. And I used the formula for gravitational, like the gravitational formula for um, mass and objects in space. And I interpreted it into GML and gave planets a mass and everything would be affected by the gravi- gravitational constant um, and the gravitational function. And I don't know why, but I thought, yeah, this will just work. Like, That's how gravity works. If I give my visual representation a mass and it has a radius, then this will just work. So I put it in there and set it to update the gravity each, uh, each update. And I was like, I'll just start simple. I'll start with a moon and I'll start with the earth. So I put the moon in there, put my earth in there. I made like these little crappy sprites because I'm, I'm not an artist at all. Yes. Uh, but you can tell there are a moon and an earth. And I hit play. And I looked at it and neither of them were moving. And I'm like, well, they should be both affecting each other. And the moon should at least like start to orbit. Um, and I'd added I'd added an f- initial force to the moon to get it to start orbiting, and just nothing was happening. And I was like, mm, maybe maybe there's something I'm missing. Like, why is like this function that's meant to map out gravity not working? Um, little did I know, after probably like hours of of trying to debug why this was not working, I was using real time. And as we know, the moon actually moves quite slowly around the Earth. If you're watching it in, for a one minute interval, it doesn't move much. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> So I I, d- I hadn't noticed, but like I started debugging out uh, one of the values of like where its position was, and I noticed it was changing, but like very small, like very small increments. So I'm like, oh, time's moving too slowly. So I sped it up like a hundred times. Then it started actually looking like a solar system moving at a hundred times speed, and it made whole much whole much more sense. Um, and then I added the ability to add new planets in by clicking, so it would add uh, I had just created all of the different planets in our solar system. Pluto was still a planet at the time. Um, you would click and it Could. it should still be but it anyway. should still <laughs> That's a topic. should still be uh, you would click and it would add a new planet into this solar system and the camera would zoom out to show all of the planets, um, which just caused chaos right because they all start affecting each other um, and yep. it was essentially a, like an early form of of universe sandbox. nowhere near as good as that game when that came out, but um, it was just some 2d sprites and like I passed my assignment um, and I was like, oh, that was actually really easy to pass my assignment I didn't have to write anything and I didn't have to make a diorama. I made a video game that you could add planets in and see what happens. Um, And my teacher was blown away. She was like, what? You made a video game for your assignment? Like, that's not something anyone's done before. Um, So I sort of rolled with that and I had a health assignment the next term and I made a game for my health assignment. My health assignment was fatigue. So I made a driving game, which was, it was sort of like an isometric, you're over the top of the car, like watching a car drive and you're on top of a road and there's some trees and rocks on either side of the road and it would all started out fine you sort of go around some like slight curves it was pretty straight um but then all of a sudden your eyes would start to close like the screen would like black down and you well for the whole time that the screen was completely black so your eyes had fully closed uh it would just add like a, a slight knock to the left or right of your steering and yep. then you guys would shoot back open, and you'd be slightly off course, or whatever you'd correct. And as it went on, you'd get longer and longer. And the only way you could stop it was to pull over and take a sleep. Um, But nobody ever did, right? Everyone just kept driving, and they're like, oh, I wonder how far I can make it before I crash. Yeah, they see it as a challenge (laughs) at that point. Yeah, they see it as a challenge, but I'm like, this actually maps pretty well to what people do. They're like, oh, I can make it. I can can make it a little bit further. I can make it home. so I spoke about that when I got up and did my presentation. I, I gave the game out to everyone so they can play it on their, their little computers they had. My um, high school was pretty good. We had public computers that were, They were pretty nice. Um, everyone played the game. and like, My teacher was blown away again, uh, my health teacher. He was like, oh my goodness, you made a game. And it's like this, this growing trend here. Um, so I made games for another like two assignments, I think. Yeah. Although I think those two were my best, uh, if I'm honest. Um, what other what other subjects got that same sort of treatment? Uh, I think I made one for English, and it was like a, oh, that be impressive. it was a slight visual, like a, almost like a visual novel that we see today. Like you had two little characters that walk on screen, and you'd do like a little talking animation, and you could choose between oh, yeah, a couple okay. of options, and it would sort of react. It was super basic, um, but I had to write a whole bunch of stuff in Game Maker, and that was before I learned anything about like proper data structures uh, or anything because I wrote a whole bunch of switch statements for sort of every encounter, and it would just go through, travel through the function logic. Um, but yeah, I did one for English and I did one for, uh, oh, what was it? Oh, yeah, I did, one, I did one for IT. So for IT, we had to write an algorithm for sorting a list. Um, yep. And in high school, everyone, all everyone knew was a bubble sort, which we don't use these days because it's really slow. Uh, but I made a game about getting points for correctly ordering things, and essentially I got the user to do a bubble sort by clicking and dragging pieces or, like pieces around in this list. Uh, and it sort of had the steps about how you were going about doing it. It would like write out the step that you took, um, and it would write it out as like a little pseudo code, um, which was pretty entertaining. Um, my teacher definitely got a kick out of it. Uh, so yeah, that was that was another one I made. I probably made more to be honest, but I can't remember them now.
0: Uh, As a math teacher, I feel like I need to ask: Was there something maths related that you? would me- I know it kind of underpins a lot of what you're doing. Was there a maths related one that you can recall doing? No, I
1: didn't. Ha- I don't think I did one for math. I think I, res- yeah. I think I respected it too much. It was too hard to to think of a way to make a fun math game because like, all my games were had some sort of fun element to them. And at the time, I was like. Yeah, I find math enjoyable, but I can't seem to make it fun for other people. Like even when I was studying with other people, people just hated it. There was not many people I yeah. It that... either
0: it is it either clicks or it doesn't. Yeah. For for people.
1: Um. I, rem- I remember like I got kicked out of specialist math because I was having too much fun, and like <laughs> this sounds really bizarre, right? But what would happen is that we we're doing. I think it was during our uh, first term, and it was like the second topic we we're studying. So we did. Uh, matrices first and then we did vectors and yeah. vectors were my my cakewalk I had done vectors in my game maker programs I had touched vectors yeah, te- in, in uh, like, like essentially every mod that I've worked on yeah that tends to be the one
0: that traumatizes most other people I know
1: right I, I loved vectors so I'd get through all of all of my stuff real quickly and then I'd talk to the people next to me but they wouldn't be finished their work I would just keep talking to them though uh, and I'd, so I was distracting so not that I was like having too much fun but i was so distracting to the whole class or yeah you're impacting uh, other people's ability to work. yeah that the teacher kicked, tried to kick me out um, <laughs> and she went she went through this whole all like, ordeal orde- ordeal ordeal to get me kicked out um she went through and like it was like oh you know uh then you know only got uh like a, a, an 83 on matrices i don't think he'll be able to you know do the, oh, I don't oh, think you'd yeah, be able to yeah. do the rest of this unit. It would just be too hard. Like matrices is the easiest one we do, and I was like, "But I'm I'm going to get 100 percent on these vectors. Like, or maybe not 95 if I mess up or something like that because I'm too hurried. Human error. Yeah, and like she well convinced my parents during the first parent teacher intervi- interview. So my my parents were totally on board with having me move to a, a to generalist math.
0: Um, wow, that's that's not a small step. Well, I was, uh, I, was I was already doing methods, so it would have been methods right. and
1: generalist uh, rather than methods and specialist. Um, so eventually, I actually, I did actually get removed from from specialist math, uh, which infuriated me beyond no end. Um, I probably raged to my Water Warcraft guild when I got home or something. Um, but what happened is there was no space in the generalist maths classes, so I got put back in the specialist class, and she had to teach me generalist math. Oh. So she had to teach me generalist math while she was trying to teach everyone else specialist. So I ended up doing both. So I did my generalist math, and once I was finished with that, I did my, the specialist stuff. Because I still had the specialist handbook, I had to do all the specialist stuff. Um, well, I had nothing to do with the specialist book, rather. Um, so I just ended up doing all the work as well. So we did imaginary numbers and we did a bunch of like physics, uh, parabola stuff, and I was like, oh, I'm doing this in physics at the same time as well, so it sort of lined up nicely. Um, but yeah, my, my final two years were very math-heavy, because I did physics, methods, generalist, and then I was also doing specialist kind of uh, for the second half of the year. And I think, oh, that was mostly it I did in my year, year 12 at least, because I finished up all of my other units earlier in school, so in Year 9, I did a Year 10 subject. In Year 10, I did two Year 11 yes. subjects. In Year 11, I did uh, two 12, Year 12 subjects. And in Year 12, I was like, oh, I've got this sold. I'm I'm just going to come to class for the English and Maths. That's all I need to be there for. I'll come up and I'll just I'll have the rest of the week off. I can play as much World of Warcraft as I want. Uh, not the case in public schools, I found out at the time. You have to do a minimum of four units, I think. so.
0: Yeah, there's that. And then most of those classes, they have a minimum attendance yep. as well. And
1: yeah, so yeah, I, mean, I ended up having to I pick work up in a, I work in
0: a public school so I've had to use that one as leverage on a couple of occasions even for my best and brightest Yeah, who I know I'm more than up to it. I've kind of got to play a little bit of hardball. Yeah. But...
1: Yeah, so you probably you probably know like definitely know the kind of thing I had to go through. Um yeah, it's... and I I I got
0: to say it like I I feel I'll never vocalize it because I've got yeah. to toe the company line but uh um like I do feel sorry for them in those sort of scenarios but uh, they do you know will potentially feel like their time is being wasted in some ways but unfortunately we're uh, governed by a larger entity in the in the department we got to we got to toe their line so yeah definitely definitely
1: but yeah anyway the
0: human side of me kicked in I want to I want to help but sorry guys I kind of I kind of got to play
1: ball here Oh yeah. yeah, I definitely felt that when I was teaching at Swinburne. That said,
0: I can't say that I ever pull a stunt like uh, your specialist teacher,
1: though. Oh yeah, that was so mean. Uh,
0: she even pulled what's in. What's that? You're What's that? You're a little bit bored and you you've you got something to do. Fine, I'll engage in this
1: in the stupid and fun. Let's Let's go. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I in year twelve, I ended up picking up a TAFE course. So they let me do a TAFE course um, and use it as a unit. And I went to another school to learn it. So I did Cisco networking, which came very much in handy when. Those troubles with the router at home. Uh, so, yes. so, I did. I did full my full Cisco uh, before the end of the year. I got Cisco qualified um, when I when I graduated year twelve. Um, so I graduated year twelve, and I still wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do. Um, so I ended up uh, going to TAFE to do web design and web programming. Because uh, I was like, oh, I'm quite enjoying the network security stuff I'm doing and I've been doing a lot of web there. I went and I was bored out of my wit, ended up making games the whole time out of JavaScript and ended up like, making tools for like, you know, making riddles and stuff like that. Um, and I honestly think that was probably like the biggest like waste of two years of my life uh, going through TAFE. Um, I did end up making a few things that were cool, but it was mainly like a waste and I was kind of in that period in my life where I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do. I was a bit lazy. Uh, I was still living at home and like not really doing anything, just playing video games. Um, but as I sort of came to an end there, I started working on a mod with a with a friend uh, for Gary's mod. So uh, it was a full overhaul of of Gary's mod uh, to a whole different game mode. And it had our own assets, in their own music, our own sound effects, and all of our own custom programming for like all of the game logic. Um, all it kept from the Source engine was like basic movement, jumping. Uh, even jumping, we modified quite heavily. Uh, the the shooting logic for actually doing all the networking code stuff. We had to do a bit of our own networking for it to get like all of our extra added features to work. But uh, it was mainly a full overhaul. Uh, and it was a game mode called Extraction Point. And the yeah. game mode was uh, a 1v3 balanced uh, asymmetric multiplayer shooter, uh, so 1 versus 3 was the base rate. Uh, you could have back up to maximum of 16 in the server, so it would be a 4 versus 8, uh, four, 4 versus eight? 4 versus 12. Um, and it was superhumans versus SWAT. And the sort of weird thing about it was it was completely random loadouts. So. Uh, what would happen is you would get assigned a random class. So there was seven ghost classes and ghosts were the superhumans. And then there was about 10 SWAT classes. And you could have multiple different classes. Some of the classes were limited. So you could only have one medic per team or one medic per up to six players so that you could only have two if you have a full team. And so there's some, some limiting there. And that was probably my first taste into like real balancing of a video game. So that game, was heavily iterated on, so uh, we both, both my friend Aiden and I, uh, we, we had sort of watched games develop and we'd sort of started to learn a bit about how games were developing. My friend Aiden already knew he 100% wanted to make video games, so he went to, went to uh, university straight out of high school and uh, started learning uh, programming and, and computer science there. But we started making this mod and what we would do is we'd sit up after after school in the evenings and we would work on this mod. And because it would hot load the Lua scripts and any custom code that you were running into Gary's mod, you could just sit on the server. We could just both be connected to the server and just programming. And we would both uh, copy it into a Dropbox. So I think the Dropbox was actually on his machine when he was uh, running the server and it was on mine. And Dropbox was brand new. It was like everyone got free gigabyte of storage and that was like cool. And blowing people's minds. Yeah. The the free online storage. It was a gigabyte. It was crazy. Uh, but yeah, we had this folder that we shared. So it, it would duplicate on each of our, each end of our computers. And not had the same system of when you joined a server, it would download all the things you needed to play that that game mode. Uh, so it would download models, it would download sound effects, download custom code, it would download um, Essentially, anything that it needed to run that game mode. So, yeah, we, we would just sit in this server. We'd both be programming away at stuff and like save a, save a file on one, one end. And I'd save a file on my end or whatever. We just had to make sure we weren't touching the same file. And we were generally sitting on Ventrilo at the same time talking while we we're doing it. And then we'd, we'd alt tab back into Gary's mod and it would live update. You'd see the little compiling in the top left corner. And yeah the new stuff we've just changed would be there. So for the first week, I think we probably spent like six hours a night and we're just sitting in a server together making these changes and we would verse each other. So it's just 1v1 at the time and it was, you know, it was pretty tough in a asynchronous... Uh, sorry, not asynchronous. Um, asymmetrical game where one person is much stronger than the other. So it was always a challenge playing as the un- under underdog. 'Cause it would randomise which team you're on too. So you'd get maybe while well I was the ghost one round, and then maybe I was the SWAT next round, maybe I was the SWAT again. And then we started getting our random loadouts in, so the SWAT would have their own weapon set, like weapon pool set. Um, certain SWAT could get different weapons, so like there was like classes that were heavier weapons, some that were lighter weapons. Uh, and we managed to get like I think a suite of sixty five weapons into the game. And Then there was... You you had random grenades as well. So there was, like, some smoke grenades, chaff grenades, uh, like, incendiary grenades, fragment grenades, uh, HE grenades, and you would get a random grenade based on what class you were. were. Um, The ghosts had their own types of grenades, so they had, like, my favourite, the Keltrop grenade. You would throw a grenade, it would spread Keltrops across the ground, so you could deny a whole room. Yeah, okay. (laughs) Um, And it was fun. Like, we're just shooting each other and stuff. And we're like, well, we have to come up with, like, Something to to aim towards, right? So the SWAT need to be trying to do something, and the the ghosts need to try to stop you. So we were like, well, Counter Strike's game modes have been doing fine. Let's do something similar. So uh, we had a, the first mode we did was uh, extract the relay. So what you had to do was get into one of the the bomb sites. So for most of the development, we used all of the Counter Strike maps. Uh, and they just tend to work out quite nicely because there were two play, uh, two team based modes, and they were uh, yeah. sort of structured that way. So some of the maps were really unbalanced for it. So you had to go in, get your, get the relay, and then get it back out towards your spawn. Um, and the gameplay kind of actually went pretty slow for the most part. So because like, you could die quite easily uh, if you got the jump on somebody. Your weapons were quite powerful if you were the ghost. Um, the ghosts had abilities to go invisible, but they couldn't shoot while they were invisible. Um, ghosts can wall jump and get up to high places, uh, but the SWAT cannot, so they're cautiously walking their way through uh, the map. Uh, but if you get cornered as a ghost by three SWAT, you're, you're doomed. And then we went for another mode, which was just a secure the area, so it's kind of like a king of the hill. It would tick down while you are in it, and if you get booted out, it would stop and stop stop ticking down. And to secure the areas, they are always in quite open areas. so. You know, you were at the, the whim of ghosts picking you up from quite a large distance away. And this game mode was was so fun. Like, to make this game mode was horrendously fun. Like, I don't think there was a single point in the game where, uh, like, in making it where I wasn't having fun. Um, and I struggled to find that kind of experience even in, like, the game development that I'm doing these days. And I think it was just because it was just such a small team and we were just doing such radical stuff. Um, and it sort of had this balance to it where some rounds would be really balanced, like you'd have like a weapon that wasn't too great against ghosts, but it wasn't the, the best, and a ghost would have maybe one of their weaker weapons, they didn't have uh, proper wall hacks going or anything like that, uh, but then you'd also get the rounds where you got a terrible weapon. Uh, you might have had a great grenade, so you had like, I've got one shot at this, so go get this grenade in the hole and get rid of the ghost. Uh, but then the, the ghost might be, might have their pure wall hacks where they can see you at all times and they've got a sniper rifle that shoots through walls. So they've, they've got the, the dream loadout. Um, so you'd get these funny moments and rounds would never last longer than like two and a half minutes. Um, so they were nice and quick and when you got killed, you would have to sit out and wait. So we didn't want them to take too long. But you never had to wait for long. Yeah. You never had to wait for long. As soon as, as soon as one spot went down or one ghost went down, things started to go downhill real quick, uh, if you weren't real careful. and, you know, we worked on it for probably two months, getting it nice. Um, I spent... Oh, it would have been more than that, actually. It would have been, like, three or four months, because I spent a whole month making a custom map for the game mode. And it was specifically designed for the Capture uh, the Relay, and it was, like, a, a much bigger than a Counter-Strike map. It had unique sections that you could call out by name that were, like, obvious areas. And it had, like, lots of ducking and weaving. It had some vents that ghosts could go only ghosts could go through. Uh, it had, like... Uh, things that were the right height for SWAT to look through gaps, but not uh, like the best for, for the ghosts. Um, lots of choke points. And it was like, this was probably like my crowning source map achievement. Um, and we were ready to go. We got our Steam Workshop page going because the Steam Workshop was brand new. Uh, and right about that time, all of the YouTubers at the time picked up uh, a game mode called uh, Trouble in Terrorist Town. And it was, it was almost the same week. So Trouble in Terrace Town on the Steam Workshop just went flying up in popularity and just drowned us right out. So we never got much takeoff uh, from from there. So there wasn't anybody creating custom servers of the game mode. There wasn't anything like that. We just had our five servers that we t- took out of our own uh, like part-time job money to, to host. Uh, so we had a host in Europe, uh, East and West Coast of America, Australia and uh, I think I think there was one in the UK as well so we had like one in France one in the UK and you know two Americans and then you Australia that's still a decent spread yeah, at that early sort
0: of stage yeah and and it was
1: it was it did okay in uh like in the America region I like could have like usually at least 6 to 7 people on the servers for like the first week and then it died right off because then most people started swapping over to hide and seek that started becoming popular and then there was a murder game mode that came out that became popular and like we just kept getting drowned out um but everyone who played the game mode thought it was like horrendously fun um god horrendous is not a good word for that just hilariously fun i should say uh (laughs) And like even to this day, we still play it at LAN. So whenever I have a LAN, we usually have enough people to play the game mode, so we play it. Everyone has a, a jolly old time for about six hours. It's that like addictive to keep playing it, because um, you're like, oh, what's my next loadout gonna be? What's my next loadout gonna be? Um, we can get them next time. And then when you get, the, you get the golden loadout that's perfect for your character class, you're just like, oh, yes, the other team's going down. Um, but those moments only happen like every like hour maybe, maybe two hours. Um, but it's fun, like up until those points. Um, but that kind of that that sort of springboarded off springboarding off that, I was like, Yep, yeah, I had so much fun on this project, I wanna make games for the rest of my life. Um, which was a big commitment at the time. I'm not gonna not gonna I'm
0: not gonna lie. Uh, so, well I mean you're starting to think actual you know, rather than a pastime, you're starting to think profession at this point. Yeah. And that's 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 a big difference. Yeah, I also
1: saw like all these people making games off of money and um, uh, I think it was that year as well. Braid came out. Um, yes, and that game did really well. Um, and it was I was like, this is made by one person. I thought it was at the time. It was made by like three. I think two, two, two. Well, two yeah, but
0: you see, yeah, you see, Jonathan blows yeah. out front, and that was kind of the real face of the whole thing. Yeah, right. And but you are talking about a period here that was re- like really, really big when it came to that indie sort of scene. Like what Microsoft was looking to do with the um, summer or winter of Arcade, depending on your region, was was huge in terms of spotlighting. Yes, this is, this is serious business and if you want to pursue this thing, big or small, there is an outlet and an avenue there to do it. So it doesn't surprise me that maybe
1: emboldened you somewhat. Yeah, 100%. Like... Because, like, you, I was reading the articles online that, like, you know, that's it's sold this many copies. And I was like, I can do math. I understand that that's a lot of money. Um, yeah. Like, obviously, that money doesn't all go to, to Jonathan Blow. But Yeah,
0: it's you know, you can assume that, you know, a cut goes out to this company and this goes here and yeah, all that sort of stuff. But... Uh... Yeah, it doesn't take a genius to work out there's still a lot of money circulating because of one video game, regardless of how much you ultimately get.
1: Yeah, so it sort of clicked that this is this is something that I could, I could do. Um, people had fun playing something I made. I had fun playing something I'd made. If I could have this much fun making games in the future, it's definitely something I want to be doing. So I went to university and I did computer science. Um, and I majored in games at Swinburne University. And I was... Not gonna lie, I was bored for majority of my time through Swinburne, um, and that's because I... Is that just because you were working
0: at a level that was well above what the course kind of dictated? Yeah, me? so what the course was
1: asking of me in Introduction to Programming and then Introduction to Data Structures, I had taught myself, because I needed to, to make the, the silly games I was making beforehand. Um, yeah. And even just like some of the, the networking stuff I was doing, I required to write a lot of the stuff. Um, but yeah, I managed to get out of doing like, the whole network track because I was CCNA qualified at the time, and I, so I cut down my course a bit, and I, yeah, I sort of just I steamrolled through that class, uh, that, that whole course. Like I don't think there was a single time where I studied. Um, <laughs> I, I, people are going to hate me because, I and mean, my friends hated me at the time because I, I was just sort of cruising my way through. And at the same time as I started university, I took on making a YouTube channel. So I also This is the Draps T V This is Draps TV. So I, I started Draps TV. I wasn't actually thinking much of it at the time. I was like, look, I know how to program in Python. I'm quite good at it. I've done a lot of it writing my own like networking tools and stuff. So I'm like, I'll make a beginner series. And something that really annoyed me about like series on YouTube, like teaching programming, is that it was never an advanced tutorial. Like it was always beginner Python tutorial. And then occasionally you'd find like an intermediate Python tutorial and it would go four episodes and it would not actually scratch the surface at all. So I'm like, I'm going to change this. So I think I, I sat down, it was like my first break from university and I spent the whole break making videos. So I Made I'm like, I don't I don't like it when YouTubers, you know, make a video and they upload it each week and then they go on hiatus for a month and then they come back and finish the series. I was like, ah, that... That
0: consistency is important. Yeah,
1: I'm like, I'm going to make my whole series in a weekend and then I'm going to slowly dribble it out over, every couple of days because uh, that's what, like, the big YouTubers were doing they'd release the video every couple of days. So I dribbled, dribbled them out and I was like, oh my God, that actually took a long time. Like, it was take... It took me, like... The first video was always quite short. It would take me a couple of hours to make. It was just an introductory, what tools you need, how to set up your environment. And then the second video would be another two hours on top of that. And then the video started taking like eight hours to write the script for. So I was script, I'd write out the script for the whole thing and then I would record the whole thing. It would take several takes because my I had quite a stutter going on around that time. Uh, and I would say that my YouTube actually kind of fixed that because I started talking a lot more and thinking about what I was saying so i mean it's still not gone but it's a lot better so i wrote a script i would re- record it several times and then once it was done i would edit it for another four hours or something like that. encode it and that would take forever to render on my crappy pc i had at the time uh, and then i would upload it to youtube and that would take forever because crappy internet um, and i did that probably for like a couple of months and i sort of did my own sort of like uh guerrilla marketing campaign i would go to a few forums and be like oh you want to pick up python uh, i talk about python and where like where it's applicable every time every step of the way and like, i guess sort of try and teach it a little bit differently uh shared it to a bunch of different forums um uh, started up like a social media for it a little bit afterwards and stuff like that and it started to actually get some growth like it was steady growth it wasn't anything huge i wasn't uh, it wasn't the size of PewDiePie or anything like that. Because well, no, but I, yeah, look.
0: I did a bit of digging when I was looking at the channel. I saw there was a lot of videos there that were in you know, several thousands. We're yeah, we're not talking yes, yeah, um, you know, double di- single double digits. We're you know, there's there's a decent community coming to take a look at this stuff.
1: Yeah, hundred percent. So yeah, it started off quite slowly, right? So the people were dribbling in, and people were like, oh yeah, actually these are these are kind of alright. Uh, people would come in with their YouTube criticisms, but for the most part, everyone was quite positive in the in the in the the, the chat underneath the video. Um, and then I got up to my advanced series and I did the whole thing for the advanced series. And I made sure that when I was touching a topic, I would cover like at least 80% of the topic like for getting going in Python, doing that topic. So some of my videos were yep. 20 minutes. Some of them were almost an hour. Like they were, they were huge videos. And by the point that I got to my advanced tutorial, I had just ticked over 10,000 subscribers. So it actually went quite quickly going from the Beginner and Intermediate series. And I did a couple of Hacking with Python videos, which were my yep. real popular ones at the time. So I, I did Beginner, Intermediate, and I did my Hacking with Python because you needed the Beginner and Intermediate to sort of understand that series. So I did yeah, I did a, like a 10-part uh, Hacking with Python series at the time. And that one, that one skyrocketed my subscriber numbers. Uh, and then I did my advanced one, and that one had... Um, some more of the complex topics around regular expressions and uh, networking for Python, so setting up a ser- client server network, um, and how to set up a peer to peer and create a little basic chat. Uh, and I, I thought I'd be creative and I was like, you know what, like people, like there's so many tutorials online if you can read to make a TCP uh, reliable chat system. But I was like, you know what, let's, I'm going to take it from like a games perspective of, or like a, a UDP perspective and how to make a connectionless, uh, connectionless UDP non-reliable chat. Um, reliability could have been added onto it afterwards, but it was connectionless, which was the main thing, um, which is you know a critical thing now in in like Discord era and stuff like that. It's all like a yes. lot of it is connectionless traffic, but it's a reliability layer is added on top of it. That's better than TCP because it doesn't have to do the full handshake. Um, yeah. So yeah, I did. Uh, I did that whole series and then my channel took off even more and like it was steadily growing at like a thousand subscribers each month And uh, I kept making content and I was doing this all while I was doing a university course So university kind of got like shunted a little bit, but I was still getting HDs. It was fine um, and So that was going well um, But like little did I know that after making it to my final year of university uh, where where I had the probably the most fun because that was when I was sort of pulled into the games course to do programming on the games projects, uh, which is what I 100% wanted to do. So normally I would be doing a capstone project for, like, the army or for, like, the government to make some crappy app that they're probably not really going to use or they're going to use and it's going to make everyone li- everyone's life worse. Um, so I went into the games sector and programmed on a video game, and I learned a lot about working in a team there. Like, we had a team of... of- well- eight people um yep of all all colors of life so some that were like artists some that were not very skilled and were still learning and that infuriated me because i'd spent so many years already doing this stuff um so i just yeah you'd done your time yeah so i constantly felt like i was being let down by the team and like i had my friend aiden who who i mentioned earlier that we did extraction point together he had taken a, a gap year uh, to do IBL and he did IBL at a uh, web company, I believe. and he came back and we ended up being in the same um, group together doing the same uh, Capstone project, which was a video ga- video game. So I could trust him because we'd made something together. He was in a similar boat. He'd done like similar stuff to me. He'd always been sort of working on his own games and working on modding and stuff like that. Uh, but he was way better at particle effects. So he did all of the particle effects for a Half-Life 2 mod called Empire's Mod, uh, which is a fantastic yep. mod. And it's I think it's actually coming back into popularity now. Um, got an update and it's oh, good. pushed up, which is fantastic to hear. But he was a very strong programmer as well. So we worked together quite quite a lot in unison. And we built like this really actually quite a, like, amazing like, underlying, underlying game system for a dungeon crawler. It you know, random, randomly generating dungeons and uh, the enemies would spawn in certain s- sections and they had AI patterns that you sort of had to learn. Uh, there was six, six classes in the game that the players could play as and you would play up to four people in a co-op experience where you're crawling through a dungeon together. Uh, very similar to like a modern gauntlet. Oh yeah, okay, right. I'm just going to take a drink. No, no problem. Oh, all this talking. But yeah, it was like a, a gaunt, gauntlet, kind of, which came out, I think, that year as well. So we, we ended up playing that game quite a bit. Uh, but the the art side just couldn't keep up with how much content we were making, like on the gameplay side. And I always saw, thought that was quite a failing on their part, like on the artist side. I'm like, oh, come on, you, you know, you've been doing this for three years at least. Like, come on, you should be faster at making models and animating them and rigging them. Um, and honestly, they probably should have been a little bit better, but I was not very forgiving. Uh, so I, I remember having lots of talks with my lecturer at the time or he was managing all of the groups and he was like, look, you're being too rough on people, like they're still learning and all this sort of stuff. And I sort of became a, a lot more understanding and I started to take the project a little bit less seriously in my second semester. Um, but it turns out that like, well, all those chats with my lecturer and stuff like that, we became quite familiar to chatting with each other. Um, I was usually quite um, interested in the kind of games that he'd worked on. So he worked at Blue Tongue. His name was Andy Trevilian. And yes, yes. Familiar with the name. Yeah, so you probably heard Andrew speak about it on a previous podcast. Um, and so, yeah, we he actually got, became quite good, good friends. And uh, when I finished up at university that year, he uh, offered me a job to, to teach uh, the low, like the low, uh, year twos, uh, in introduction games production and uh, digital game prototyping lab. So I was like, "Oh yes, absolutely, I'll take that." I'm looking for any kind of job coming out of out of university. Um, by this time, YouTube was paying me, you know, about like 250 a month, which was you know brilliant. I yeah. was enough to sort of yeah, off, offset things. And, um, yeah, if YouTube wants to do that for player
0: two, we'd be really appreciative, so <laughs> come on, guys.
1: Yeah, of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, I ended up teaching at some university and that was, that was nerve-wracking. I remember my first day, I was like, oh, God, this, this is nerve-wracking. I only like, graduated last year. I mean, I've been working in games for quite a long time um, and I'd done i actually been doing contract work throughout my university life as well. Um, I worked on a couple of, couple of games just doing some real basic stuff, but it was still a sort of stepping stone. Um, that sort of led to this sort of stacking portfolio of experience that I had that I didn't really really, really realise I was building a portfolio at the time. Um, but I did realise how important it was to have a portfolio when I graduated. Um, so yeah, I started teaching and uh, oh, it, it was tough because I remember my first semester, there was somebody in my class that was substantially older than I was and the mature age student, the mature age student, which is fine. I actually really like mature age students after this experience, but it was sort of really intimidating because I'm like, I, ne- I, I, barely listened to my elders when I was younger, and like my parents never, as evidenced by the whole router. Thing yeah, we were talking about and before. my parents never really <laughs> listened to me either. The, like when I was saying, like, oh, I made this this game mode, or I made this mod or this map. My parents were like, "Oh, that's that's lovely, dear." Like, I had no fathoming idea of what it meant. Um, yeah. And like okay. how much work, bit yeah, how much work went into actually doing it. Um. But yeah, just this, my perception of just uh, mature age students was just rough, and I I felt it my first day that I wasn't getting respect from the people that I was teaching. Uh, but you know, I got up there. I was like well today we're we're learning uh, I think we're learning uh, source tree so git and source tree and yeah so I got up there and I sort of went through a full explanation of wh- how git works and why we use source tree as an interface rather than a command line and after getting through it all and going around and helping people as they work through their exercises uh, like I felt a lot calmer and like the people were coming to me to ask questions and I was like oh this is this is working out, I, I know the answer to these questions. Um, I didn't get any questions that I didn't know and people were throwing them at me. Um, so I went, I went around the class and I spent time with every single student because when I was going through university, I always used to hate it when the teacher wouldn't have any time for me or they wouldn't come speak to me, so I'm like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be the change. So I'd go around and I, I spent at least five minutes with every person, getting to know them and like what they were interested in, why they wanted to get into games. And then I, I also got frustrated because there were some students there from like, like they were like from journalism, but they didn't really have an interest in games. They're like, yeah, I thought it, I thought oh, it'd yeah, just okay. be fun, and I was like, that's great, but you, they didn't really have any practical practical skills to bring. And once they figured out how hard it was, or like how like much lingo they didn't already understand about um, programming, or about just about like software development in general. Uh, it became quite challenging with those students and some of them would leave because it was too hard or too much work. Um, but Some would stay on and they were actually usually quite fine after a while. Uh, but yeah, that was my sort of first... But it was a challenge because there was so much catch-up required. Yeah, definitely. I just definitely had to spend more time with those students. Um, but then, yeah, that, that unit, unit sort of sailed by and like, I guess sort of, you know, that was really fun to do. Um, so when... I was asked to do the next semester and do Digital Game Prototyping Lab. I like, jumped on the opportunity. I was like, yes, 100%. Um, and Digital Game Prototyping Lab was a uh, sort of a rehash of an old unit, but it was 100% focused on they spent the whole semester making a video game. And that's something that I had asked for when I graduated. There was like, I wish that earlier in the, the course, we'd started making games, that we had more things to show at the end. Um, yes. So then all these all these rippling effects happened after I was through, of course. Um, so yeah, Introduction to Games Production came in as well, which was the unit, first unit I taught, uh, which wasn't there when I went through, and it was something that frustrated me because I had to teach that stuff to my team in my final year because there was no unit that taught it earlier. Um, so yeah, swim worked at swimburn for three years teaching those two units, um, and that was great fun. Uh, a, lot of this, a lot of the students have gotten jobs now, which was fantastic. Uh, Usually I could tell the ones that were going to do well. Like They were the ones that had done stuff outside of uh, class and, or were willing to do more and make their own games.
0: Um, yeah, it was a passion before they actually found themselves in that course. Yeah, so they were doing
1: stuff on top of the course. And I'm like, you know what, you're going to get a job because everyone here is going to graduate with the same game project or like very similar, like they're all very moderate level, but you're going to have one extra game than them or two extra games or three extra games than them and they're so varied yes. um, and I tr- always tried to encourage that from all students but not all students are, are built the same are motivated to do things outside of class uh, so yes
0: I do know that all too, all too well
1: yeah so around that time like after I graduated university I had really struggled for work previous to that it had always been contract work um, albeit the contract work was pretty good it was like you know fixing up websites, fixing up SQL databases, all of this stuff that was, like, sort of pretty niche stuff um, But I had been doing, like, the SQL stuff, I learned SQL for hacking purposes earlier in my in my life. Um, so fixing up and migrating SQL servers, I was a whiz at, I had written scripts to migrate server um, SQL databases, because I would, you know, if I get into a web server, I would migrate their uh, SQL server onto, like, my local disk, so I had access to all of the SQL databases to run. Start running through hashes to try and find collisions and steal passwords etc but anyway so i was really quick at doing that stuff so all this contract work was how i was getting paid money so you know fixing sql database might be like 500 here a thousand dollars here whatever um and that was enough to sort of keep myself going through university but i didn't have i always really struggled to find work and then yeah graduating university i got landed the job at swinburne i got a job at a theatre. Doing something completely different. I did box office and ushering work and tech work at a theatre. Um, and the tech work, not not computer tech work. Computer tech, uh, tech workers in lights and stage setup and stuff like that. Um, what else did I get a job in? So I was doing my YouTube, swim and uh, theatre. And then I got a started doing contract work uh, at Samurai Punk. No, not yet. I hadn't done Samurai Punk yet. I started my own business then. When I finished graduated, I started my own business uh, called Correct Rejection. Correct Rejection. Yep. Yeah, I did
0: have that listed as something that we needed to talk about. Yep. Uh,
1: which uh, I started up with uh, two others from my final year team. So Aiden and uh, my friend Michael, uh, who was our 2D artist. And he was, he was fantastically skilled. He was so talented. He blew me away like the whole year. Yep. So I was like 100% want to work with this person again. Uh, And then uh, uh, my friend Amanda, who was in another final year team, and my friend Tom, who was in the same final year team. Uh, So we sort of amalgamated and made this new team. And then that first month after we graduated, so uh, right over the Christmas period and early into the new year, uh, we made a game in three weeks called Primate Press, which was a mobile word puzzler. And it was... It was fun. It was like uh, Boggle mixed with Bejeweled. So you would move letters around to make words. Uh, we really wanted to call it Bejoggled, but we thought we might get in trouble if we did that, so we called it Primate Press. And it was themed around... Yeah, a little, little too similar, and that might aggravate a few people. Yeah, looking about it now, we totally should have called it Bejoggled. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, we called it Primate Press, and it was themed around monkeys running the press, because uh, at the time we were quite annoyed with written press, and like it was sort of a statement game as well. Um, that all of the junk that gets written out in modern day like physical press is just written by monkeys. It's essentially the whole, the theme, right? So yeah, you, would, you would create all these words, and then at the end, it would create a newspaper for you out of all the words that you found. Um, that was that was a fun project to work on. And Then we started working on our second project, uh, which was a shoot 'em up for the phone called Armada. And Armada was uh, similar aesthetic to. Uh, Gurun Lagan, which is an anime uh I'm not sure if you're familiar with it
0: personally I'm not but I'm sure there's someone listening who is yeah so it
1: was sort of a very similar aesthetic uh and it was it was very weird so our take on this one was uh all of the planes and ships were men so they all looked like humans and hopefully I can uh, there might be so I have some videos around I might be able to send you but uh all of the ships look like men and all of the pilots are women so it's like all these women driving pilots they are driving these ships around and they all have like witty banter with each other in like this cut scene at the start uh very visual novel style and then it goes into the shoot 'em up and the gimmick was that like when you would release your thumb from the, the screen or your finger from the screen you would phase out of existence and you could teleport so you could place your finger down somewhere else and you would teleport to that position so that led itself to sorts of mechanics where, like, you could jump over beams that were scrolling down the whole screen, um, and not take any damage, uh, like jumping inside of shields to take down like a, a shield enemy, and then jumping back out after you were done, and the shield would explode, um, and yeah. like all these sorts of mechanics that were actually quite fun. And uh, then you would get to a boss at the end of each level, and was, we ended up making eight levels, uh, each getting wilder and wilder. So it started off with a pretty like standard, uh, you know, shoot 'em up boss at the end it had some nice animations that uh, my friend Aiden had done um, and he he just loved making these bosses he was having so much fun like animating all of their boss patterns and their their shooting patterns and stuff like that uh, so it started off as a basic ship and then the next one is like this big large man that has like really buff shoulders and he's got cannons on his shoulders and it's like okay this is this is a little bit weird and then like it would like get into the next level and it had like a big man that was a blimp Like he had a he had a Zeus head, he was a blimp, uh, has like tails and stuff like that. It was getting so bizarre. All the way up until like the final level where you were fighting the moon and the moon would Yeah, the moon would consume you halfway through the fight and you would be fighting these giant eyeballs that are inside the moon and they would like flip inside and out, and it was it was crazy. It was like a hell of a game. Um, but right around that time we were running into financial issues, we had done some contract work. Uh, But the money was starting to run dry again, and it was really tough. I was, I was trying to work on the game, but I was also spending so much time going to meetings and like pitching to angel investors and like talking to the government to do government games and like I was just in meetings all the time and I was on the phone and it was it was crazy. I was like really learning a lot of business. I'd read so many books on business. I was just going head deep. Like I was spending so much time. I was not sleeping any more than I was in high school. I was just learning. About business, learning about running business, going to teach a Swinburne, coming to work again in the evening, working on this game. Then I, like, some evenings I'd be going out to the theatre to work, and the theatre was way out and out in the, the sub the outer suburbs, and that uh, was like a really intense part of my life. And then, it was, yeah, about a year later, uh, like we were still working on the game for probably nine, a bit over nine months, uh, the money was running dry. Uh, we'd done a couple of other little contract things that all all never came to fruition. Like they, we made them and delivered them, but they never were released by the people who were paid for them. Which, okay, that's we a all thought was really weird. Like they, some of us, some of them, have paid us several thousand dollars to do them. Um, I mean, you get the occasional weird title
0: like that, even in the, I guess it's very rare in the AAA space, but it has been known to happen even in that space. I think I recall. EA basically ripped uh, NBA Live 13 or something years and years ago because it was it was a steaming pile and it was a week before the release they just straight up cancelled the project. But yeah, um, it certainly doesn't happen very often at that top end. Yeah, and it's not all that common overall, I guess. But so it is a bit weird that that happened to you.
1: Yeah, I mean a lot, on those a lot of the stuff we're doing was like for for artists and artist projects and stuff like that. So I don't know if their funding ran out or whether they wanted they changed their idea or whatever, but. Yeah, it just how it, how it landed, a few things didn't come out. Um, but, yeah, so we ended up running out of money and we're like, well, people are starting to struggle with motivation because we can't pay like ourselves a full wage. So people are struggling with motivation. So we ended, we ended up going, hey, let's just call it. And by that time, it had been something like 16 months that we have been been running. And like, let's just call it. We'll take the the profit that we do have at the moment, like well the revenue. It's not really a profit, um, considering how much time we sunk unpaid. Uh, let's yeah, take the money that we do have. Just we'll divvy it up after tax, and you know, that we'll call call it, it yeah, there. Cash out essentially. Yeah, so so we did that, and you know, it well went fine, because um, yeah, I had to do so much accounting stuff for that as well. I had to learn how to do accounting because um, I couldn't afford to pay anyone to do it, and then um. Yeah, and then then around that time, I just started doing contract work for Samurai Punk, working on the American Dream, and that was a VR game. So that was it was right when uh, PSVR hadn't launched yet, but the dev kits had been sent out. Yes. So they were trying to come up with a game, and Sony had given them a headset because they'd released screensheet on on PlayStation, or they were just about to, and so Sony had sent them a headset saying, "Do do you want to make some make something for, for PSVR?" will give you free headsets if you make something. Um, so they were like, free headsets? Hells yeah, uh, realizing that they're buying into making something essentially. Um, so I came on to work on the American Dream and American Dream has sort of sort of been set up as what it was uh, by that time. Uh, it was pretty early in the project. It was probably the six month mark. They'd sort of been still doing screen sheet stuff. Um, there was There was just the PAX build that had been made, so that was just the two levels, the tutorial and the burger level. But you
0: do speak about that that PAX build, and I remember yeah, it would have been PAX 2017? Am I right with you? I'm I'm
1: wondering if I'm getting that muddled in my head. Yeah, PAX. It would have been PAX...
0: 2016 or 17. But I think it was PAX West
1: 2016... So I
0: think about the build that came to Pax Oz. That's that's where I got my first exposure to the game, um, and a few people from the Player Two team. We'd been you know kind of scouting around the floor, and I mean we've got that early access, early access media hour, and so we yep. run off and try and deal with the triple because as soon as the public gets in, that's basically right off at that yep. point. Um, and then we start cr- kind of crawling through the the Pax Rising thing, and and there was just murmurings coming from a few people from the team that you know the American Dream, the American Dream, <laughs> and I'm you know I'm. It's kind of in my head. Okay, I need to get to this thing, whatever this thing is, um, and I'm starting to hear everything involves guns, like just <laughs> and, and not and not like in the first person shooter sort of way. Just it's it's a piss take. Just you know, go on, just go check it out at some point. And I eventually got there, and then I saw the Samurai Punk name at the top, and I'm going, "Oh, hang on, I need to I need to take this thing seriously because though I had, I had a great time with Screensheet when that when that first came out, yeah, um, and that instantly, that had that buy in from the uh, from myself um so yeah it was it was a really interesting one to come along and i had a great time and i picked it up then when it came out i was i, I mean i'm a anyone who knows me they'll call me a sony pony or some sort of rubbish yep. but anyway um I, I do love my playstation so i got my vr and i, I jumped on that thing day one not just i swear by <laughs> it it was a fantastic game the american oh Dream. thank
1: you thank you yeah that so that project was meant to be much shorter than it was um as as we've learned it happens to a lot of video games um But yeah, that that project was meant to be half as long as it was. Um, But then the narrative ended up blowing up, and um, Winston, our director, who was writing all of the narrative for that game, um, it just sort of kept bloating and bloating, and no one was really there to sort of pull him back. And that was sort of a failing on on a lot of our parts. Um, But the game was quite fun to work on. because we got to spend a lot of time in VR, so we got, definitely got to learn it well. Anytime a new, like, interesting VR title came out, we already had the headsets that were ready set up so we could just play it and sort of look at it. But it also came with a whole bunch of design problems that I had never touched before. The, the team is still sort of learning, and we're all just trying to like share information with other VR devs on how to deal with the situations. Um, yes. And then like we've all,
0: it's a whole new world in many ways. Yeah.
1: So and because we all also wanted to be an accessible game, so we wanted to have subtitles and stuff like that. So it was like, oh god, how do we deal with subtitles? Um, but yeah, that that game just took a long time. Like I was I was working on it as a contractor for I was meant to do like a, just a minimum of eighteen hours a week, but it was essentially do as many hours as you can when you get this game done. So like, I was just filling any like spare days that I have, there wasn't at Swinburne teaching, I would just spend all day there. Sometimes I would do like a 10 hour day there. Um, sometimes I'd work from home because I had that sort of that sort of leeway as a contractor. Um, uh, it was sort of hard to work from home because I didn't have a VR headset there, but uh, like so like level building stuff and design and just programming stuff, I could get away with a lot of it. We had some tools for mimicking a headset um, and the guns without actually having to have the headset on, so that worked for most of, most of the stuff. Um, but yeah, I came on. I was while well, I was working on the, the burger level for that game, I did like all of the gameplay programming for that. And like I think that's that's that game is probably like the most arcadey sort of level in the game. So it definitely my sort of playful nature came through on that that level. Um, and I think that, that ended up being in the second pack's build that we took. We had the burger level. Uh, instead of uh, the bagel level, because um, it was fun to flip burgers with guns. Yeah, of so course. it worked on. There's
0: no, there's no better way to do it. In fact, it it's the right way to do it. Yeah,
1: definitely. Definitely. <laughs> it just made sense. Uh, so, yeah. So we, I worked on that project for a long time. I was still working at the theater, so I would sometimes be working in, in the office till you know six pm. I'd have to leave and go travel for you know an hour and a half out to the theater and then I'd travel an hour and a half home. Um, I was sort of working away, and then probably would have been, yeah, near um, the middle of that year, so it would have been 2017, I think, uh, that I was, like, headfirst into development with with the team on that. And the Samurai Punk people really made me feel like part of the team, even though I was a contractor, so, like, they would, you know, talk to me as if I was a team member, so, uh, I probably I probably seemed pretty distant to them because I was used to the sort of contract interface, uh, but they were sort of treating me as a team member. Um, but yeah, I mean, any any
0: good business or organisation or game studio does those sorts of things. So
1: I'm glad to hear yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Um, that that'll actually come into it a little bit later um, when we get to the modern time as well. Um, but yeah, so it's, that game was really fun to work on, and it, that took a long time to make. Uh, I got to learn PlayStation development because I'd never done that before. Which was super cool, Um, and like integrating with Steam and doing all that sort of stuff. That was really really fun to do. Um, But yeah, I uh, middle middle midway through the year, I ended up starting up another business, uh, running an art gallery, uh, which is you know totally different again. Like I've done so much stuff, I swear. Growing pains. That that was growing pains indeed. Yeah. So growing pains was a a art space slash gallery. Uh, for artists thirty and under, uh, because out in the Danny Nong Ranges, there was no facilities at all for young emerging artists to get into galleries, or even for people in the state, young artists emerging in the city, there was nowhere for them to exhibit. And a lot of exhibiting at, at, at art galleries require you to have exhibited somewhere before. It's the same catch twenty two as finding your first job, right? Yeah, they look
0: for experience. Uh, yeah, that's yeah, that whole experience thing is a weird, tricky thing to. To yeah, indeed, for the businesses and those who are aspiring.
1: Yeah, so Growing Pains did that. I won't talk about it too much because it's not really re- related too much to, to game development. Like, I was in a few of the exhibitions that we ran when we needed a few extra people that sometimes have a game or something game-related that i do, something interactive at least. Um, so that was, that was taking up even more of my time. So I didn't take a holiday for, I think, two and a half years. I didn't take a holiday from... When I graduated from university, what well, would have been probably the semester break before the final semester of university, I didn't take a break until American Dream shipped. So it was like quite a long stint of working seven days a week, um, living off ramen. Oh, okay, so I was, I, was, I was
0: about to ask about that. When you said, you know, take a break, I assume, I assume at least some portion of the weekends were included,
1: but no, not even the weekends. I wasn't taking even the weekends. So my YouTube started to fall off. So, you probably see around that time, if you look at, like, my upload history, it started to fall off and I was not uploading anything. I just didn't have the time. Like, I would sit down, I'd write some scripts and I'd be like, I'll record it on the weekend and then I would end up being working that weekend or I would, you know, be seeing my, my, my partner at the time. Um, yeah. But I was just not having time to do anything. So, that started to fall away. But that was still good. I was still getting income from from YouTube, which was good. Um, and I just sort of saved, saved, saved money, saved money. Um, and then yeah, it's, it's, that sort of brought me all the way up to kind of where we are today. So I was still teaching at Swinburne until till the end of last year. Uh, no, till middle of last year, I stopped teaching uh, and took on a full time role at Samurai Punk. And when I took on a full time role at Samurai Punk, my I stopped working at Swinburne. Uh, I s- sort of started to stop working at the the gallery, oh the theatre, sorry. So I sort of had yep. a few more shifts left, but I was finishing up, uh, and then I stopped working at the gallery. So I was only doing some of the social media stuff uh, up until the end of the year. Yeah, you just transitioned. I just transitioned out. out of doing everything, and um, and then as my sole focus has just been Samurai Punk, and I've got my weekends back. I've been playing video games on the weekends, and uh, it's been quite relaxing and and something that I completely forgotten existed. Um, yeah, I was about to ask, how, how
0: does it feel to actually suddenly have all this time, well, not all this time, it's still two days yeah. out of a week, but uh, how does it feel to have all this time up your sleeves suddenly uh, after, yeah, as you said, two and a half years of basically unrelenting work?
1: It's definitely a change of pace. I For the first probably month or so, I just felt lazy. I wasn't doing anything because like, I would finish work at probably six thirty, seven 7 maybe, uh, travel, get home at 9.30 and I would be home and I wouldn't know what to do for the rest of the night because normally I would be at the theatre working until 11 or 11.30 um, or I would be like working on a YouTube video or I would be doing social media for growing pains or I would be doing something and then just all of a sudden there was just nothing and yeah I didn't know what to do. I, I played video games a fair bit but yeah I didn't, didn't really know what to do and I felt lazy when I was playing video games. I actually felt quite guilty. I think I wasn't progressing towards my goals while I was doing it yeah I understand that's a i
0: i'd i'd imagine that's a very common sort of feeling in that in that sort of instance um i've uh, it's something like that sort of work-life balance sort of thing is something that I've personally had to grapple with a little bit over the journey So I, I work my my five days of teaching and I mean if anyone knows the workload of a teacher it's not it doesn't just end at three fifteen <laughs> or three thirty or whenever the school's bell en- uh, bell ends there's all this marking rubbish that goes on afterwards but then you know I I'd, I'd be trying maybe in and amongst recess or lunch or before school after school any any sort of downtime I'd be starting to draft little ideas for written pieces or I'd start getting ideas together for video, audio or video or podcasts or whatever the thing may happen to be um and then that would extend into the weekends and i'd get up at maybe 6 a.m even on a work day hours before i'd have to get up to work and i'd start trawling through the news to see what i could kind of build upon and it's yeah that that sort of thing can can burn you out and it can i guess in some cases it can even burn a few bridges and those sorts of things as well so oh 100 100 percent um, um when life circumstances started to kind of change and I got married and and now, as of the last few the last few months, were well, nearly four months now, of having a child, it's kind of uh, hang on, that, that time at home is actually I, I don't have to be buried in my computer or what it, or books or whatever it happens to be. Like sitting there engaging with my family is even more important, really, when you think about it. And it's it's something that takes maybe a while to get in touch with um, when you've been so immersed for so long, that's
1: actually amazing, Paul. Yeah, like I, I look forward to the day that I can do that. It sounds actually amazing to me. Uh, like the whole idea of
0: oh, look, it's still it's still something I have to grapple with every now and then. I get the little tap on the shoulder, like Paul, can you? Hey, we're here. <laughs> <laughs> um, and and it's it's something that like it took a it took a long time for me to kind of get my head around, and now it's just making sure that I actually don't fall into old habits, I guess. Um, and, work, and you're kind of finding that balance, I guess. Um, yeah, definitely. Because, yeah, for a long, long time, years and years, it was still the same sort of idea as what you're talking about. I, I mean, I wasn't taking on as many different things, but it was still probably similar sorts of hours. You'd just be uh, working at way late into the night, and then your weekends, you're probably neglecting, uh, you know, relationships with other people, friends or family or whatever it may happen to be because you're writing an article or whatever the thing may end up being. So Yeah, definitely. It's, it's a tricky... Tightrope to walk, I guess. Yeah, my friend Paul
1: definitely shrunk.
0: (laughs) Yeah, they kind of. Oh, we don't want to. We haven't heard from you in a while. I guess we'll continue on with our life and. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's a weird thing to kind of adjust to, I guess. Um, and then suddenly reintroduce yourself to everyone when you kind of go, "Oh, hang on, I've got this time. I need to use it in in different ways."
1: Yeah. Because well, American Dream came out twenty eighteen March. Yes. Yeah. So essentially the week the game came out like slightly after that i went on break for two weeks it was the first break i'd taken in a long time i brought myself a nintendo switch because i'd been eyeing one since they released i was like oh that actually looks really good like um being able to pick it up and take it on me on the train and all that sort of stuff so i picked myself up a yes nintendo Switch. Console. Got, got my splatoon 2 because i always wanted to play splatoon 1 but i never had a wii u Got my, got my, Sorry, got no my Splatoon 2 <laughs> and I think I, I sat there and I played Splatoon 2 for the whole two weeks. I, I think I went outside a couple of times uh, to get more food supplies and and alcohol, uh, but I, I just played Splatoon 2 for the whole two weeks and I think I...
0: And now you do competitive Splatoon, is that indeed, right? Indeed,
1: yes. I play for a team called the Splatbacks. Uh, we're all game developers, so we're not incredibly great at the game because we're busy, <laughs> but... But we go to to the local tournaments, and and we play together. Um, And we have a lot of fun. The the community surrounding Splatoon 2 is fantastic. It's so welcoming. Everyone is there to have fun. Uh, I haven't yet encountered any toxicity, so no one's been attacking anyone or calling people bad at the game or anything like that. Um, People just have so much fun playing the game, and it's something that's really kept me playing the game. in that kind of space and you know it's really fun um, if, if you haven't played Splatoon anyone I highly recommend although it
0: quite yeah I, I I played the original and then somehow it's just, uh, life circumstances busy or whatever at the time I, it's not something that I've actually gotten to in the case of Splatoon 2 it's just sitting there looking at me and I've just never gotten around to it but you, something I need to rectify I guess
1: yeah it requires um, an online account now so it's it's a little bit of a downside but
0: Ah, right, still- oh, that's right. I I got that free 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 Nintendo Online and all that. Oh, sorry, um, Nintendo Classic Games and all yeah. that sort of thing. It's well worth the price.
1: Yeah.
0: Um. So some of the projects that you're working on more recently, uh, we were talking about one of them just before we actually started recording. Yep. Um. But did you want to talk about a few of those games that are kind of on the way and what what your involvement is with those games and the ambitions for the game?
1: So yeah. So we had a a little little bit of a six six month project. A uh, little turned out to be a little bit more. On making a complete re- revise of Screensheet for the Nintendo Switch. So we called it yes. uh, Screensheet Unplugged, which was uh, unplugged from the internet. So there was no inter- internet support, so no online matchmaking or anything. Um, and that's because we were like, you know, the console itself lends itself to more party games. So we're like, let's just go back to what the game was about. And that's, you know, being on the couch with, Embrace the with core your ID. friends and screen cheating on each other. Um, and I was gonna, it's definitely going to make it a lot easier because we don't have to adapt all of our network code to, to switch because uh, that was going to be quite a bit of bit of work to do that. Um, yeah. And I just thought it was sort of feasible to have our team doing that. Um, but, yeah, so we worked on that, and I think we did an amazing job with Unplugged. Like, it just looks like such a high-value game now. Um, like, we really tried to get that Nintendo feel uh, that we aspire to in like a lot of their games um yeah. and i think we hit it like i think we've only got like one problem that, like major glaring problem with the game which was a huge like contentious argument in the office about the level progression and giving out content at a decent rate but you know not too fast that people jump straight to the harder levels because the levels do actually get more complex and a little bit more confusing um we yeah, definitely didn't want people on their first boot up to play like a random map and get spin because spin has upside down and like all the way around, dropping through holes and vents, and um, you know, there's no, there's not lots of point of references to find the other players. You kind of have to know the map quite well. So yep. we kind of wanted to drop out the maps and the, the guns quite quickly. They're the first things you unlock, and then slow it down for the ragdolls and stuff like that. But yeah, screenshot was. Quite a fun project to to work on, and it was the first time doing a Switch Switch game as well. So uh, it was the first time doing anything for a Nintendo platform. Um, Broadening that portfolio, definitely, definitely, and it was definitely really fun to do. Uh, And then we did at the end of end of the year, we had a a one month project. It was was slightly slightly more than one month to do a game for Humble for their Humble Original. Uh, So we did a game called Roomba First Blood, where you are a Roomba that cleans the floor. Uh, in a home alone situation so the family leaves the house and robbers try to break in the house they realize that people are away and they're trying to break into the house and you're the sole defender of the house so you go around the house setting traps and just uh, murdering these people into that are entering the house Um, they hit by doors and slip on sprinkler traps and they get fans dropped on them you stab them with a knife Uh, like there's just all these ludicrous stuff and it just paints blood everywhere over the ground and you clean it up as a good little rumba. So it sucks up all the blood and once you suck up enough blood you turn into like rumbo mode where you've got like your Rambo headband on and you just get your eyes bloody and charged and you're just going mental. That was a really fun game to make and for the time time limit that we had, I think we made something quite fun.
0: No, it's that's pretty awesome. Uh and there's there's another one that's I guess still in development at the moment that I actually I don't know, it somehow slipped my gaze and when I think about and kind of the very little I now know having done a little bit of digging since I stumbled upon yep. it um, it seems to kind of in many ways fly in the face of the tone of other games that have kind of come out of uh, Samurai Punk so far there's, there's Feather yes
1: indeed, so Feather so Feather started out over, over a year ago uh, as a game jam game that we did internally uh, called uh, Fruits of a Feather and Fruits of a Feather was just a game you fly around an island as a bird and you pick up fruits that were hanging from trees. Uh, and that's sort of, it's just yep. a collect a they're hidden around the world. Uh, and the game was, was okay. Um, and we put it up on IO it, it was free, you could just donate if you wanted to. And people really liked the bird. Like They liked flying around as the bird. They liked the way the bird fe- felt, felt like a flying as a real bird. It was a little bit like lofty going left and right. Uh, had a nice like rhythm to the flapping of the wings and the music was really good like the people just really liked seeing the music and flying around this island and finding all the things the island has to has to offer so we sort of built on that so we took out the fruit part of it because honestly that wasn't very strong anyway and uh our director nick uh worked on the game on stream for a few months just adding little assets here and there while we were working on dream and working on. Screen sheet, yep. and then uh, coming up recently, uh, we sort of pulled myself and uh, one other onto the project and uh, did some more work on it. So it'll be coming to a couple of platforms now, and it should be coming out. Oh, good. Should to be hear. coming out in in a couple of months. Uh, it's mostly there. Uh, it's got. That's right. I, I, I won't try and get you to commit. to anything yeah. Too too oh, specific. It's oh, definitely not my my position to make those commitments. Um, but yeah it's got soon is more than enough because it does look very promising yeah it's just really relaxing uh, if you were at PAX OZ uh, last year you would have had a chance to play it I think it was even at PAX East uh, last year as well um, just as a single computer setup uh, but we've added some really nice features uh, something that I think people will really get surprised at when, when they play uh, but yeah it's it's a really Relaxing game to play. Honestly, I sometimes boot it up after work if I've had a particularly stressful day, and I just sit there and I fly, and it is very relaxing.
0: Yeah, and that was kind of the thing that struck me most about it. Like I can, you know, I compare it to the other Samurai Punk games so far, and this is very serene. and It's very peaceful and calm, and um, and obviously the other games are very kind of bombastic in a lot of different ways, and it's kind of higher energy. And this is this is the complete opposite, and I, I can totally see how that would have that sort of impact on you. Yeah, and any, and any potential players.
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, there's the people at PAX were just like, oh, when can I get this? How can I get this? Is it on Steam yet? So we're like, yes, wishlisted on Steam. It'll be coming out next year, like early next year. So it was, it was fun to sort of see that many people enjoying it. Um, it was actually more popular than, than American Dream um, this time around at PAX. I was, I mean, more people were stopping for Feather than they were for American Dream. Which maybe may awesome. because American Dream was already out. People
0: had seen it before. Well, yeah, I guess it's a known commodity yeah. in some ways. Uh,
1: yeah.
0: Um, so as we begin to w- uh, wind things down, what are some of the more valuable experiences or lessons that you've kind of learned over the journey? Is there be- have there been any particular moments that have really resonated with you throughout your journey so far? And obviously, we're still early days in the grand scheme of things. But um, and has there been anything that's really stuck with you and resonated with you?
1: Um. I don't, I don't so that's a tough one because there's all lots of little moments that resonate uh, with us as individuals. And I, there's too many like little moments where it might just be a, a nice conversation I have with a friend about game design, or it might be like some psychological theory about games that keep people playing them or why we make them. Uh, and some of sometimes it's just those little moments when somebody really appreciates something you added to a game or or a game that you made, um, and this like those little moments really like bring up your spirits and remind you why you're doing this, even if it is for quite a, a pay cut compared to where you would be as a normal programmer uh, at, any, at any other yeah, software company.
0: Oh, and so what about on the the flip side? There have there been any. And we won't be ending on this negative note, I promise you. But uh, uh, have there been any any moments that like there've been some really hard lessons to have to grapple with? Some things that have really tested you um, in ways that maybe you didn't expect.
1: Uh, mani- managing a, a company is was much harder than I thought it was going to be. You have to make a lot of tough calls. Uh, you have to be very serious with the people you're working with, and if you start a team with friends, that is very hard to do. And can often burn bridges. Luckily, the people I was working with were able to see that I'm trying to do it as to better us all and managed managed to forgive me. Um, though I'm pretty sure as we're winding up correct rejection, there was people that were quite mad at me. Um, I, may, I may be overreacting and they might've actually thought it was fine, but uh, yeah, it felt I definitely felt this negative aura around me. Um, and it gave me a whole new respect for people who run companies. Uh, and the leadership that it requires to do so. Um, the hard ones in games were, were learning to let go of, of, of things that you think you need, but don't add the value that it requires to add them. Um, yep. And that's, that's a hard lesson to learn. It's it's something that we're still teaching people on the team at, at Samurai Punk. Um, like Even now and then, I somebody has to bring me down because... Like it's really easy to get excited about an idea and seeing where you can build from it, uh, but then you have to realize, oh, that's going to take time to do, and time is something that we've got.
0: Yeah, time and and money and all those sorts of things, human resources. Yeah,
1: it's something that we don't have infinite of. So yeah, those are the hard lessons.
0: No, that that's they're, they're fantastic ones and I mean I guess they're things you're always going to continue
1: to keep mm, learning and then there's so what there's, is, there's also, there's also yeah, sorry, on. so there's, there's also like the generic ones as well right so there's the ones that like when things are going well in life or you're having a particularly hard time there's always another spanner being thrown into the workshop so it's like oh yeah it's like sometimes you can be having a real bad month and then something even worse happens Um uh, but then yeah you just got to keep going right
0: you grind it out and you end up overcoming yep. Uh, so yeah, as, as we really wind things down uh, we've obviously spoken a little bit about what's on the cards for Samurai Punk with Feather in particular um, but what is the fu- what do you see the future holding for you within this industry, what are some of those aspirations going forward?
1: Um, ideally, ideally I just want to be working in games so the one thing I really like about working at Samurai Punk is that we make really out there video games so the stuff that we're talk- talking about and working on internally that I can't talk about uh, are that's really good. like fantastic, way out there kind of games. Um, some of them really crazy, some of them really funny, some of them um, are just downright disgusting. But um, they're like, they're, they're, that's the kind of things I want to be doing. I want to be making these pretty out there kind of video games because it's something that our, our medium is willing to, to do. Uh, and, yeah, perhaps more so than other mediums. And have more right. people engage with it. So if somebody writes quite a disgusting book, there's going to be still less people that engage with it because they have to they have to turn that page or they have to it's a little bit less visible. they can make it as bad as they want in their head um understood yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah
0: all right so if people want to the listeners want to kind of catch up with you and the studio and kind of keep keep tabs on what's going on with all things uh, Samurai Punk, where would you recommend they go?
1: Uh, so most of our stuff goes out through Twitter and Facebook. So on Twitter, that's Samurai Punk Co. And if you want to contact me directly on Twitter, it's Draper Danman. Uh, and yeah, feel free to DM me anytime. My DMs are always open. And uh, yeah, or you can just tweet at me.
0: Well, Dan, thank you very much for joining me for this episode. It's it's been a really enlightening story. It's certainly um I didn't expect that we'd be spending as much time as we did with the the period before you actually got into the industry, but it's perhaps been one of the most fascinating portions of this entire story so far, and I'm really, really thankful uh, that you took the time to to share that with me and the the listeners today. So thank you very yeah, much. Yeah, no worries. I know it's
1: it's a little bit of a a, a weird thing to hear coming from such a, a young person, but I just spent so many years doing things that led to where I am now, and that I, I still you can use as a portfolio of things.
0: Um, yeah. So yeah, thank you very much, and we'll see you bye next bye. time. So that concludes this entry of Dev Diary. Be sure to subscribe to this feed, share it with your friends, and give us a five-star review to help boost the show up the charts for greater exposure. If you have any people you would like me to reach out to an interview, then please find me at PaulJamesGames on Twitter to help me get in touch with them. Until our next episode, however. That's been Dan Draper's story. Thank you very much for listening, and I'll see you next time.